Some of you have been to my house and you've seen this banner. Others of you have no clue what this is, so I'll tell you a little bit about the history of what this is. Um, years ago, my daughter Kelly was taking an art class at Northville High School. And her art class was on a field trip to the University of Alaska at Fairbanks, taking a tour of the art department. And my wife and I volunteered to be chaperones for that field trip. And while we were there, they took us on a tour through the student gallery. And hanging in the student gallery was this piece of art. And the title of this artwork is His Banner Over Me Is Love. And um, I asked our guide, who just happened to be the dean of the department, if the students ever sold their art. And he said, well, some do, and some don't choose to do that. And he said he could let me know the name of the students, and he would get me in touch with them, and we could start talking about whether or not he'd be interested in selling me this piece of art. So a couple of weeks later, I get a phone call from this young man, and he's so excited at the fact that somebody's expressed interest in his artwork, and I said, well, um, what would you be asking for it if I were to say that I'm interested? He said, well, what about $1,800? And I politely told him that I don't think I could afford that, and so thanked him very much, and made that the end. I didn't want to offend him, but at the same time, there was no way that I could afford $1,800. And I don't say that it's not worth it. I just, I couldn't afford to spend that kind of money on a piece of art. But I really liked it. And about three weeks or so later, he called me. He said, I'm a single, I mean, I'm a young parent. We have a young child who's um, uh, in our home. He said, I really need some money. Christmas is coming. What would you be willing to pay? And I said, I don't want to offend you. But I am a pastor. I don't have a lot of money. I have two children at home still. And really and truly, I couldn't afford a lot. He said, what? I said, $150. And he said, could you make it $200? And I said, yeah. He said, okay. So I was able to purchase this for $200. And I don't feel guilty about it because I didn't manipulate him. I didn't twist his arm. I didn't try to... To, to, to negotiate with him. I simply said I couldn't afford 1800 and I closed the deal. He's the one that came back and was willing to negotiate and accepted my offer. So the only thing I regret about this at all was I forgot to have him sign it. So I don't know his name. I don't know anything about his background or if he ever makes it famous. But I love the work. And uh, earlier this week we had friends staying with us and one of them is a worship pastor at a church down in Anchorage, and she made a comment about this banner and said that she thought it was beautiful, and we talked for a few minutes about what I thought about it, and a little bit about the story. And I said, one of the things that has been, for me, the most dramatic and powerful thing for me is, is the, just the power that's in this imagery. I mean, for me, looking at the wound in Christ's hand and seeing there's just some some strength there. I can't explain it. I just know that it speaks dead volumes to me. Well, the interesting thing was, just a day or two after that, I was having my quiet time, and um, I have a book that I purchased. It's, it's an electronic book that I keep on my iPad, and it is a book called The Olive Tree Book of God's Names. And I use that as just a, a every so often I go through and I read just one or two of the names of God that come out of the Bible and um, just meditate on that and what does that mean to me well the name that came up 
that day, just a day or so after my conversation with my friend, was Jehovah Nisi, which is the banner, or the, the plaque that we have over on the wall. Jehovah Nisi means the Lord, our banner. Well, the very first thing that came to my mind as I was meditating was um, uh, the, the song, His banner over me is love. He, t- he takes me to his banqueting table, his banner over me is love, whatever. I don't remember the whole thing. And I started looking up the scriptural reference for that. Well, that actually comes out of the Song of Solomon. And it's talking about the love between Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, which is a representation of the love between Christ and his bride, the church. And so I meditated on that for a little bit longer, and then I thought about it, but I was like, but that's not Jehovah Nisi. That's talking about the banner over me. What is Jehovah Nisi? And so then I began this study of that, and I recognized that that came out of the story that's found in Exodus chapter 17 about Moses leading the Israelites in the battle against the Amalekites. And it is where Moses is up on the promontory with Aaron and Hur. Joshua is leading the Israelite army down in the valley against the Amalekite army. And whenever and Moses raises his arms up with using he's using the, the rod of God, the staff that he uh, got it from God that I mean that God appointed him to use when he was doing the plagues against Egypt. And so he's holding up and it says in the scriptures, as he held the, uh, the, the rod aloft, the Israelites would be victorious. But Moses' arms would get tired, and so he'd lower them to rest. And it says, whenever he lowered his arms, the Israelites were being defeated by the Amalekites. And so he'd raise his arms back up, and then the Israelites would begin becoming victorious again. Well, throughout the day, his arms got more and more tired. The point was harder and harder to lift up, so that Aaron and Hur then came alongside him, and they set him down on a rock. So now Moses is seated, and then Aaron and Hur come alongside him, and they literally hold up each of his arms while Moses is holding the rod. And it says that the Israelites were victorious that day. And so then, after the battle is over, the victory is won, Excuse me. Moses is then, we're told, Moses in verse, I believe it is 15 um, of this chapter, Moses builds an altar and he names the altar Jehovah Nisi. The Hebrew word is Nes, N E S, but for whatever reason, you know, you, 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 in, in other languages there's conjugation of verbs, etc., and different ways of forming words. The word is Jehovah Nessi, which means the Lord is my banner. And as I was reading through that, I was like, well, okay, well, what does that mean? What does it mean, the Lord is my banner? And then I was thinking, well, his banner over me is love. But that's not what it was talking about. What I, as I studied it, said it was actually this idea that God was over the Israelites. It was a standard, if you will, talking about like an army situation. Um, well, let's, let's back it up a little bit, going back to this, this physical emblem that we have in front of us, this banner. 
Um, back in the, in, the, in the days of the Exodus, which when, that was when this battle took place, if you look at the way that they were to sit, I mean, the way that they were to camp, the tabernacle was in the center, and then the, 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 the tribes of Israel, three, 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 and three, from above, if you looked at it, it looked almost like a plus sign or a cross in the way that they camped. And they carried standards, banners, that represented each tribe. Okay? And God was represented by the pillar of fire or the pillar of cloud. Well, this God being my banner is this idea of God's standard, God's flag, God's banner being erected and every one of the nation of Israel rallying underneath it. Okay? And for those of you who have been in the military, you understand that there's something significant about the raising of the flag. I mean, if you're in a battle, if you think about battle scenes in movies, there's the and there's the flag flying and everyone's yeah, well, it's, I'm rallying for my country, for my standard. Well, now thinking about God as the representation of this flag, or this flag representing God, now it's everyone's like, yay, God, you're the one that brought the victory to us, you're the one that is our protector, you're the one that takes care of us. So this act of worship, of declaring God as the banner, was this really powerful image of the nation becoming united under God's authority, under God's leadership. So when I call Jehovah Nisi as a name of God, it's not just that he brings me victory, which is what I've always thought about whenever we've used this name, the God who brings me victory. It's I am aligning myself under your standard, under your banner, God. You, God, are one whom I can trust to bring victory. You are one who I know is going to unite and draw. So there's this really cool imagery there. But then as I was reading through this, I got kind of waylaid on a little bit of a, a little bit of a rabbit trail. And I looked at the Amalekites, because I, think, I was thinking, well, who are these folks? And, and what, what do I know, what don't I know about them? Well, Exodus 17 talks about this battle. Well, what had happened there in Exodus was that, and it's talked about later on, that the Amalekites are the ones that actually instigated this. They saw that there were stragglers at the tail end of this exodus of the, of the Israelites through the desert. And they came and attacked that tail end, trying to overcome part of the nation of Israel, to plunder them, to say, you're not crossing through our territory unchallenged. And so they came to the weakest point, the stragglers, the ones that were the slowest, in this parade through the desert and attack them. So if you turn with me now to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy 25. This is the last few chapters of the last book of the Pentateuch, the book of the law that Moses recorded before his death. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 to 19. 
These are instructions Moses is giving to the Israelites to follow after his death and before they get into, I mean, once they get into the promised land. Deuteronomy 25, 17 to 19. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came up out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all of the enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you will blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Don't forget. Moses is giving them a command from beyond the grave, if you will, because Moses is about to die. And he says... When you get into the promised land, when you are settled and you finally are at rest, you need to remember this one thing. Destroy them. Don't forget. Now is not the time. But God is telling you, don't let them live. Destroy them. Remember. Don't forget. Well, then if you travel down the road in the history of Israel to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, we get the story of the prophet Saul coming to prophet Samuel coming to King Saul and saying, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint your king. Verse 1 of chapter 15. I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. Okay, Samuel the prophet is coming to the king of Israel saying, I have a message to you from the Lord. Verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. <clears throat> I will punish the Amalekites <clears throat> for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now, Go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. And for some of you who have a study Bible, you probably have a note that talks about this idea of total destruction. And it says, right, next to, right after that sentence, it says, Do not spare them. Put to death the men, the children, the women, the infants, the cattle, the sheep, the camels, the donkeys. Basically, it's destroy the Amalekites. Everything that they own. And when you kill all the people, then burn down the buildings. Make it a, a heap that is unusable. Destroy, destroy, destroy. And I know that that upsets some of your sensibilities. Wait a minute. Why is God telling people to kill somebody else? But the reality is, we'll find out why in a second. God had a purpose in saying so. So King Saul, who is the king of Israel, the leader of the nation, is charged by Samuel the prophet, thus says the Lord. And he's simply reminding them of the command that they were given back in Deuteronomy. When you reach the place of rest, get rid of the Amalekites. Don't forget. So God brings it back up. Saul, you now have charge do this. This is a command from God. So what does Saul do? He goes, has the battle, but he doesn't kill King Agag. 
and he doesn't kill all of the animals. And then Samuel comes and says, what are you doing? Why? Because God met with Samuel and said, I regret that I ever made Saul king. And the Lord's like, what? What's going on? Samuel's like, what? What's going on? And the Lord says, he did not obey me. He didn't do what I told him to do. And so then Samuel comes to Saul, and Saul says, I've done what you told me to do. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. No, you didn't. If you did, why do I still hear sheep bleeding? Well, I, the, the guys, they, they wanted to, to keep the best to do offerings to the Lord. Really. And it says in Samuel chapter 15, Does God delight in offering more than he delights in obedience? I told you to do something, and you didn't. And as a result, Saul, God has now told me to tell you, you are no longer going to be king over Israel because he can't trust you. And someone else is going to take your place. And Saul's like, no, no. And then Samuel completes the job and kills Agag and has them destroy everything else. So that's it. It's over with. It's done. It's accomplished. Nope. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30. Because David becomes king, because Saul wasn't worthy. First chapter, First Samuel chapter thirty. And the heading on mine says, "David destroys the Amalekites." Now, I don't have time this morning to read all of this, but understand that David had run away from King Saul, like we had talked about a couple weeks ago, and David. Um, is living in the land of the Philistines and David goes with the Philistine kings to fight a battle and the Philistine leaders say we don't want this man in battle with us we're fighting against the Israelites he'll turn on us and go with his brothers send him home and so the king of Achish or Achlet whatever tells David to go home David then goes and attacks the Amalekites because when he gets home to his town in Ziklag he finds out that the Amalekites took advantage of the fact that the Philistines were out of town and came and stole everything. Women, children, all of the cattle, all of the donkeys, etc. And so David and 600 men go down to attack the Amalekites. So the Amalekites aren't all killed because Saul let some of them get away. But then, if you look at... Where is it at? Verse 17 of chapter 30. It says, David fought the Amalekites from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away, except for 400 young men who rode off on camels and fled. So even David doesn't succeed. Not that he doesn't try. But 400 of them get away. What's the big deal? It's just 400 Amalekites. Why in the world has God got that out for these people? What's the big deal? Well, turn a little bit closer to the book of Psalms and you'll find a book called Esther. And if you look in the book of Esther, this is during the, uh, the Babylonian exile. Esther, in chapter 3, talks about a man. Verse 1 says, After these events... 
King Xerxes honored Haman, son of the Hamadatha, the Agagite. He's an Agagite? What's an Agagite? Oh, a son of Agag, the king of the Amalekites. The term Agagite here in Esther is the same as calling him an Amalekite. So now we have Haman, the Agagite, the Amalekite, who has come into power in the time of King Xerxes, who then manipulates and orders the complete destruction of the children and the nation of Israel. If that were to have happened, what would be our hope? Because didn't God make a covenant with Abraham that through your offspring I will bless all nations? What was he talking about in that covenant? Jesus, the Messiah, the Redeemer, who was to come out of the line of David, out of the line of Judah, who was a son of Israel, who was the grandson of Abraham. Back long before there was ever any understanding of Isaiah, who was prophesying about this Messiah that was coming, back before the nation of Israel had even settled into their land, there was a seed that was from the enemy of our souls planted into the hearts of the people known as the Amalekites to be at enmity against the Israelites. And the goal that this enemy was trying to get the, the Amalekites to do was to destroy the hope of the world by destroying any possibility of any Messiah Redeemer to be born from Abraham by killing them all. And God said, this cancer must be removed for my covenant to be fulfilled. Destroy them. If Saul had done what he was supposed to do, there wouldn't have been a story in Esther. Because there wouldn't have been a Haman, the Amalekite, to to declare the destruction of all of the nation of Israel. God doesn't have to explain to us his plan. He does give us glimpses of his plan. But he expects his servants to be obedient whether you understand or not because he has a reason for it. And we've already talked about the idea of Jesse, I mean of Jesus coming, but let's just let's just look for it in the Bible real quick. Just solidify this whole line. Turn to Isaiah chapter eleven, verse ten. Isaiah chapter eleven, verse ten. It says there, in that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for all the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This root of Jesse that Isaiah is talking about is understood by every commentator that has ever lived to be Jesus. And the interesting thing about Isaiah chapter 11 verse 10 is where it says, this root of Jesse, this Jesus, shall stand as a 
signal for all of the world. And that word signal in the Hebrew is nes. The same word that the banner idea comes from. Jesus will be raised up as a signal, as a flag, as a banner to draw all nations under God. And to bring it into New Testament parlance, look at John chapter 12, verse 32. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. The symbol of the cross. Down through the last two millennia, we have used the symbol of the cross to draw all humanity to God's grace. To let them know that God desperately loves them and desires them. And we can look back in this story of God trying to protect and keep his promise by rooting out, rooting out this cancer that was trying to destroy and kill because it was coming from the enemy of our souls. And the end result was a banner was raised. The fight against the Amalekites with Moses, a banner was raised. The Lord himself is our banner. Then we come into the time of Esther and they are given the opportunity to finally get rid of that threat and then Jesse's root finally raises up to become that banner of God's protection, God's power, God's love and we now have the cross as our symbol, as our banner, as our flag if you will that unites the entire world understanding that God loves them and desperately cares about them and extends grace to them. But there's one other flag that I want to point you to, one other nest that I want to point you to that's in our world today. This is a symbol for the Arabic letter N. It stands for Nazarene. It is being placarded in spray paint all over the homes of Christians in northern Iraq. Tagging those homes, identifying those homes as having inhabitants who refuse to submit to Sharia law and to follow, the, follow Allah. And these people are being ousted from their homes and they are being killed, persecuted, harmed, or forced to convert to Islam. But the interesting thing that's happening is that <clears throat> there are Christians around the world who are beginning to take that symbol onto themselves. There are people who are literally tattooing themselves with that symbol, wearing it on their clothing, tattooing, I mean, marking their own homes. In the United States, in the Western world, people are in their Facebook accounts, putting it up on their Facebook as a representation of who they are. And it is a way of aligning in brotherhood with those in Iraq who are being persecuted and literally losing their lives. It is rapidly becoming the next banner for Christianity. 
And the reason that I bring it to your attention right now is that, as, as I had been saying for a long time, <clears throat> I believe with all of my heart that we are entering into, if not already in, the end times. And it's nice that we can come to church every Sunday without fear. And it's nice that you can sing your happy little songs about the flag flying high in the castle of your heart. But there literally are brothers and sisters of ours whose children are being beheaded. Literally being beheaded because they carry the title Christian. And they're willing to let a flag fly high from the castle of their heart. And we have an obligation to them. I'm not saying we need to go over there and wear clothing that says I'm a Christian or join hands over there. We can't, it's not practical. But what we can do is we can pray. What we can do is we can begin to seek God on what he would have us do. Is there a, 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 a physical, tangible way we can help with what's going on over there? to support those folks through compassionate ministry? I don't know, honestly, I don't know. But the reality is this. In the same way that the Amalekites were working off of a seed that was planted in their hearts from the enemy of our souls to try and destroy the Israelites with the ultimate goal of destroying the hope of all of creation, the same thing is happening now in our time. The enemy of our souls has planted in the hearts of a new breed of Amalekites to destroy or to make them convert to a false religion. And I guarantee you, folks, the time is rapidly approaching when it will be right here in your own backyard. And you've got to stop ignoring it. You've got to prayerfully ask God, what can I do today to prepare my heart, to prepare my life, to protect my family, and to support those who are struggling? This is not some prophecy that's out in the future. The book of Revelation is starting to be played out in our own existence. And we need to be ready for the things that are coming. It says in the Word of God that it'll take a day's wages to buy a loaf of bread. It says in the Word of God that brothers and sisters will turn against their parents. These things are beginning to happen. And if you aren't, this is the thing that, I, that the Lord told me to say to you this morning. If you aren't already a Christian, there's not much time left to make that decision. If you are just a nominal Christian who are just kind of playing around, you know, this is what I've done my whole life and I go to church, but it's not real to you, you don't read your Bible regularly, you're not truly being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're just a Christian in name only, I guarantee you when the signs are getting placarded on the walls, you'll be going, oh not me, not me, don't not me. You'll run screaming for fear of your life. Because you'll have nothing to stand on. 
Jesus himself said, there will be those who say, but Lord, didn't I in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. The dividing line is starting to be drawn. What side are you going to end up on? And forgive me for saying it, as harsh as it sounds, you can't play both sides against the middle. You can't. You've got to come to the reality that Jesus is the only hope. Period. And you need to be so convinced of it that you'd be willing to tattoo that on your chest, on your forehead, on your hand, and walk around telling every person you know because the time has, has arrived as far as I'm concerned. I told you at the beginning of this, I went through a tear period of reflection this week because 10 years ago I had kids in my, in my hands who I came every single Friday night who I know right now are not on a pathway to Christ to go and to live with God forever. And what do I own in that? What am I going to say to Jesus when I stand before him and have to answer for what I did or didn't do in regards to the lives of these people that I had some influence over? And I've determined from that time of reflection that if, if I made mistakes ten years ago from this day forward, we're not playing anymore. From this day forward, there is intentionality, there is purpose, there's reality. I'll tell you, during this worship service this morning, the Lord was talking to me about stuff that I'll talk with my wife about long before I'll talk with you about it. But there's things that we need to talk about as a, as a congregation. There are 1,500 almost people that live out here. How many are in the room right now? Less than 40. There's two other churches I know that meet regularly and none of them are up towards a 40. That's 120 people out of 1,500. That means 90% of those people are driving into town to go to church every Sunday. No. That means 90% of those people either have a faith that they have no connection to any other Christian with or they're playing or they're lost. And what is your responsibility to that? Let's pray.